everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And on a retour de podcast pour discuss uh, un film français. Wow. Oui, oui, je sais, je sais. That's not an accurate representation of Canadian French, but I think it's an accurate representation of Toronto. I don't think it's an accurate representation of French. <laughs> That's true. That's true, actually. We can make a whole podcast on how Canadian French is its own French. Yeah. But we're getting French. We are getting French. We are getting very French. We are getting France French this month, and I'm really excited. This was a film, and the film we're talking about today is, of course, Georges Franju's Eyes Without a Face. Les uh, yeux sans visage. Oui, 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 les yeux sans visage. And um, this has been a film that I've really loved for a long time. I got to talk about it a little bit in my first book about New French Extremity, and this was when I was kind of on you, Andrea, to, like, check out, just because I I think it's such a singular special film. Oh, yeah. And it's a film that I hear talked about a lot. And it's a film that I could tell that there was a murky production history market story like we love to talk about on this podcast. It was, again, very poorly marketed, very inaccurately marketed. And as a result, it is not on a whole lot of horror fans' radar. But when I do see it mentioned in forums... I see people saying possibly the greatest horror film of all time. Like this film does rack up those accolades in certain circles. So if this is a discovery for you, I am really excited to bring you that. And I guess I have you to thank for bringing it to me, even though it took me many years to see it. I only saw it for the first time last year. I was on a flight from L.A. and I had it on my computer and I checked it out. And it's awesome. De rien. (laughs) And this is one of... I'm going to say one of the few horror films that has actually been included on the Criterion Collection. That's right. Uh, selection. So if you're a really big fan of this, which uh, hopefully one day I'll pick it up. I, I currently don't have it. But the Criterion version is, you know, really probably very cool. I have no doubt. So we're recording in the vault an hour earlier than we usually do. And I don't know about you, but this feels like a weird matinee. It does. It's it weird does. to be recording on a and Saturday. And we're doing like a black and white classy film. Yeah. Um, rather than our usual like tawdry gore. So, you know, we're going to we're gonna go with this. This is this is the Faculty of Horror happy hour. That's right. And uh, I can't think of a better way to spend it. So let's get to it. This is Georges Franju's Eyes Without a Face. <laughs> Depuis le temps que je te connais, je lis sur ton visage. Dis-moi la vérité. Les gens n'approfondiront pas. Ils ne chercheront pas à savoir ce qui se passe ici, surtout. Mais que se passe-t-il dans cette mystérieuse ville-là
After prominent plastic surgeon Dr. Genessier's daughter Christiane is disfigured in a car accident of his doing, Genessier's assistant Louise goes into Paris to lure young women back to their home to drug them and allow Genessier to attempt to skin graft their faces onto Christiane. Christiane remains secluded in the house wearing a mask to hide her disfigured face. Everyone thinks she is dead, including her fiancé, but her fiancé suspects something is amiss with Genessier, who is also his boss, and the police begin to investigate Genessier. After a successful transplant fails, Christiane becomes more despondent, and rather than go through the procedure and cause any more pain and death again, she frees a recently captured woman, kills Louise, and releases the dogs her father keeps to perform experiments on to kill him, and then she wanders off into the world. That's right. That's it. But there's a lot to it. There's a lot to this really simple story. And I think a lot of what this film has to offer is a balance between a really solid driving narrative story and the visual representation that Franju creates with the mask, with a lot of other visual metaphors within this film, and it's quite stunning. And when I say this film is singular, it, it truly is because, you know, and this was uh, initially released in 1960, it kind of got a bit of a later release in um, America, as we'll talk about. It was coming out at the time of like Psycho and Peeping Tom. so. In some ways, it has a really kind of modern ideology, but its visual style, its score, everything else feels a bit more throwback. Yeah, it, it, ha it definitely has a classical beauty mm -hmm. to it. It has a poetry to it. And yet, even when I was listening to your synopsis, which was 100% bang on, and we're going to talk about the marketing snafu that followed, but it does sound like a pretty sensationalistic, gory, pulpy horror film. However, it's presented with such beauty and such poetry and and a score that harkens back to classic cinema. It's really gorgeous, and it is really singular. I agree. So for any of you out there who have read my book on New French Extremity, it should come as no surprise to you that a lot of French films that were released and kind of created around this time, and even since, are really cast in the shadow of what happened during World War II in France. And for anyone who doesn't know, the quick summary is, well, they were occupied by the fucking Nazis. It's a really dark, murky time for France in the kind of 19, late 1930s into the 1940s. And um, it, it's horrifying. It's tragic. The whole world was experiencing this stuff, but there was a very particular quality that the French had to live with. Again, either collaborating with them, resisting them, but knowing that their land and their soil was occupied and occupied so easily by the Nazis. And I believe I mentioned this in, in our previous episode on New French Extremity, uh, but there's a terrific book all about this called Fast Cars, Clean Bodies, and we'll link that in the show notes if you're really interested in this phenomenon of uh, France's need to forget and to cleanse itself and to have this kind of beautiful, clean modernity, to forget about the atrocities of the past and just to kind of like, you know, wallpaper over it and go like... Don't look there. There, nothing happened over there. Look at, look at the Arc de Triomphe. Look how beautiful. And, uh, so that's, you know, a very simplistic discussion of it. But for me, when I, when I look at this film and, and other films of its ilk and, and what was going on in France, uh, during this period, um, in film, which was a lot of the French new waves, we're talking about Godard and Truffaut, uh, making these kind of 
seemingly simplistic stories about the youth in France and um, uh, these kind of radical ideologies and uh, the youth trying to bridge their own way forward and forgetting what their parents had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, again, as I kind of mentioned, uh, Eyes Without a Face kind of takes a bit of that ideology. For sure. But it's not the same visual style. And um, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about why I think that is a little bit later. But um, France is a really strange place for that kind of thing. And it's also important to note that, you know, the French were, you know, the first to invent film and the way we view film. And um, they were the kind of masterminds behind a lot of the cinematic technologies that were being used at the time and um, that we still kind of rely on today. Mm. So they have a really deep invested history in film. And they do share a bit of similar DNA to, um, you know, not quite the same as Canada, but Films in France are a real source of national pride. That's why France, again, as I talk about in my book, doesn't have a big history of, like, horror films. Even though they've made amazing horror films, but they tend to be like, oh, that's my redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. Don't look at it. Go look at Truffaut. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bit of denial in uh, horror films for the French. And even um, when I was researching my book and I bought a lot of books about French film, for my book, uh, I went back to them just to double check if there was anything about Eyes Without a Face, anything I could pull out of them, and there's like next to nothing. Yeah. There's some stuff about Georges Franju, who's a fascinating character who we're going to talk about, but that film is really like it's put over there, and it's uh, that's one of the things I love about the horror community is we'll we'll find these films and really start to elevate them and champion them and, and really love them and take care of them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Criterion before. I I checked out their website, their blurb about this film, because whenever they release a film, you know, they're justifying its significance Mm -hmm. to the horror world, right? When we talk about Criterion, for this film to even have a Criterion release is very validating as to its historical value. And uh, I didn't jot down the name of the writer, but we'll link to the article below. He was talking about how the producer, Jules Borcon, who is the one who acquired the rights uh, to the Jean Redon novel upon which this film is based, he was very cognizant of the climate of cinema at the time. And uh, the way the article put it was that, you know, too much blood would offend British censors, animal torture offended the British, and no mad science because the Germans were still pretty touchy about the whole Nazi thing. And all this while Borkin was handing Franju a project about a mad doctor who tortures animals while cutting off women's faces. Mm -hmm. So this film kind of, it broke some of the rules. Yeah, but it does it in a beautiful way. I think so. So when you're watching it, like, I think to reflect back on it, it is like you go back and you say, well, yeah, I guess it is about a mad scientist. It is about um, a disfigured woman. But is that what we take away from it? I don't think so. No, I don't certainly think not so. what I took away, but I think those elements are so prescient when we talk about this film and they help build the foundation of how we're going to kind of come to understand this film. Mm -hmm. So I like how it's borrowing things, but shining a new light on them. Mm -hmm. And and again, like we're coming, you know, 1960s, uh, we're coming out of, you know, kind of the 
golden age and or still kind of in the golden age of hammer horror and uh, the tawdriness of those, even though they're amazing. And the French also had a really big uh, theater movement uh, up until about the early 1960s called the Grand Guignol uh, mm-hmm. Theater. And that is like super bloody, gory, sexy plays. We're just mm-hmm. like, it's like Evil Dead the Musical. Blood yeah. is just being sprayed across it Runs red with blood. Exactly. And so it was seen as a very populous form of kind of gross entertainment, but they were selling out. They were selling out. So as lowbrow but profitable, and this is kind of that that strange space that horror has always occupied, pretty much. But I should qualify that. They were selling out, uh, the Grand Guignol was selling out their seats and their theaters until uh, World War II. Right. And then afterwards, it kind of got like, we don't want to yeah. see sad, scary We've things anymore. We've seen enough blood, thanks. We're so. good. So let's talk a little bit about the director, Georges Franjou. For some, you might be hearing about him for the first time. Um, I think for a lot of film scholars, he's very much a linchpin in French cinema. Um, Even though his output is kind of limited, he's a very important person to talk about for several reasons. He started his career making short documentaries, and then his first fictional kind of narrative film was Eyes Without a Face. He went on to make a couple others up until 1965 when he released um, Inspector Thomas, and then that wasn't really a big success, so he just kind of stopped making films for a while and went to work in television, and working in television during that time that's where you see a scope of influence kind of narrow in because it's not as profitable or as interesting at that time to translate foreign television to a North American audience or the rest of Europe or what have you. So his output, as we think about it, might be kind of limited, but I think his influence is really important in some ways we're going to talk about. But uh, there's a lot of interest in his work. And part of the thing is his themes are reoccurring. And I love a filmmaker who has reoccurring themes, especially when it's talented as Franju, because you can always see the way they're reinterpreting it and wrestling with mm-hmm. it and, and exploring it. So um, I, I've seen him in my research for this film referred to as part of the anarchist cinema, as belonging to no cinema, as being an outlier, as being the kind of master of poetic horror. You know, a lot of the themes that reoccur in his films, both documentary and feature, are uh, the notion of experience sensations, paradoxes, uh, again, this notion of film poems, which we can talk about a bit more maybe, a notion of irony or black humor, Mm -hmm. the parallels of violence and aestheticism, uh, notions of melodrama, and perhaps most importantly, or perhaps most interestingly just to me, the notion of institutions, Uh how institutions function within our society how we are pulled into them, and how we are destined to break them. Yeah. So something I didn't know about Georges Franju until I did research for this episode, um, and I I've only seen it mentioned in one place in this interview uh, done in the London Festival in 1980, and we'll link this in the show notes so you guys know I'm not making this up, but he was maybe, we can say, like a lowercase c collaborator with the Nazis. Wow. Mm-hmm. And like I'm saying lowercase c because, again, we're talking about a really murky time and I'm not trying to pass judgment. Well, yeah. who knows. But what he, what he did do, he worked with a German officer by the name of Frank Hessel. 
And his work was preserving film okay. under Nazi occupation.、Uh-huh. So the French were still making films during the occupation, but they were all being run through like a German propaganda machine. So it was all like, we love Germany. Everything's fine here. Yeah. Springtime for Hitler and all that kind of stuff.、Um, But during the raids, during a lot of other stuff, he was working to save the work that French cinema had already done. Right. So, is it great? Yes and no.、Uh-huh. I don't know. The alternative is a bullet to the head, and then we wouldn't have these movies. Well, I mean, I think in, in for himself, he、uh, he is feels very. Complicated about that because some people were saying never ever collaborate, and some people were saying yes, but in this way maybe it's okay. So、uh, it's murky. It's essentially journalism, you know. Like、uh, pictures don't lie, and insofar as propaganda is presented a certain way, it can always be re-presented a certain way. It can always be re-evaluated. It's, it's the truth, and that's、mm-hmm. important to record. And I think this kind of notion of collaborating, but even for、uh, a good thing, let's、yeah. say. It, it leads to a lot of his kind of paradoxical complexities、mm-hmm. in his film.、Mm-hmm. So one of the films I want to talk about, we are going to link this in the show notes, and I want to issue a very very serious content warning、oh, for this one. <laughs> I sent it to Andrea. I gave her a content warning. I don't think she fully believed me. No,、um, but it's it's his short、mm. documentary、uh, from 1949. Uh, called Le Sang des Bêtes, or in English, Blood of the Beasts, and it's about twenty minutes. It's all black and white, and it's、uh, this kind of again. We're talking about film poetry. These beautiful kind of Frenchy, Frenchy Paris, Paris shots of like lovers and odd chotchkes and、yeah. blah blah blah. Countryside. Like, also, there's the slaughterhouse. Yes. Let's watch what happens in the slaughterhouse. Oh yeah, and not the slaughterhouse like. These are pigs, and they come out as bacon. I didn't even know there were slaughterhouses for horses. Oh yeah, the French. Fuck, they love those shit. God damn! It starts with like this is the patron saint of horse slaughter. I was like, what the fuck, France? So again, when I say content warning, I'm saying if you want to watch it, because again, it, it's an interesting film, but I skip through parts of it. Yeah, quite a few parts of it. You know, it's the murder of horses and cows and calves. For meat,、yeah. and it's about the violence that is inflicted to create the meat that we eat. Yes, and at one point I was like, "God, is this like an early PETA video?" <laughs> But it's not coming down on a political side. It's just presenting us with something that happens right outside one of the major international cities. Like this is these slaughterhouses were just on the very outskirts of Paris, right? And so you know you think of Paris and like beautiful food and dining and sitting by La Seine and drinking wine, but down the street that poor baby calf is getting murdered. Right. Say bye to your fucking horse, kids. That's what I took away from it was was the the contrast of the nice veneer and the ugly shit that gets swept under the rug, but has to happen for the nice veneer to have that nice veneer.、Mm-hmm. And not that horse meat is necessary for lovers to kiss on the lake, but that's a different. It's、podcast. a different question. <laughs> and again, like this notion of killing one thing to feed another, right? To sustain another, right? This kind of eat or be maybe, but I find that very interesting. And so, Blood of the Beast is hugely influential.、Mm-hmm. Hugely influential.、Um, you'll. 
My, uh, I would say you might even find more scholarly work about Blood of the Beast than maybe Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And it was actually used by another filmmaker. We are, I think, quite fond of it, the Faculty of Horror, Gaspar Noé. So his first film is a half-hour short uh, called Carnet, which he did in 1991. Mm. And it actually does utilize a lot of the same visual imagery of Blood of the Beast. Really? Yeah. And it's about the butcher and then uh, this character, the butcher, is a very dark, kind of Travis Bickle-esque figure. Uh, it's it's like a 30-minute film about him. And then he turned it into a feature film uh, called I Stand Alone in 1998, which I'm also a really big fan of that film. And uh, then the butcher becomes the the character you see right, right, right at the beginning of Irreversible. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting in the in the apartment, okay. turning the pans down. So uh, that's I mean, Gaspar Noé. Maybe that's that's a conversation for another episode. I want to have that conversation. Oh, all right, let's do it. I'm a fan, and I, I can see the seeds at root. Actually, now that you mention it, he likes to present the ugly underbelly of mm-hmm. things as well, but in almost a very dizzying, hypnotic uh, mm-hmm. kind of way. Opposed to Franju's really unflinching gaze, documentarian gaze. And I think that's something to remember of Franju's cinema is that it is that documentarian mm-hmm. style. He carries that with him. He does have a lyrical visual quality in Eyes Without a Face, but there is, uh, maybe we'll talk about it a bit more, but the actual scene of gore when they're taking off the girl's face. Yes. There's no music. No. They're just, they're just cutting off her face. That's right. And it's like, what? What did you think this was? It's what you know is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it is that we could cut away and you could assume all this. But we, we know you're curious. We know you're painting these images in your mind. Here's another one yeah. to add to the collection. I love that. Yeah. And Franju, before he made Eyes Without a Face, uh, also made another short documentary, Hotel de l'Invalide, or Hotel of the Invalid, mm. about uh, soldiers who were trying to recover from the horrors right. of war. So, okay. again, another kind of institutional yeah. Yeah. element to it that he's again fascinated by and, and you know I don't want to attribute everything Franju is interested to this one thing but when you talk about you know a collaborator yeah there is a institutional collaborator for sure for the, better or for worse yeah I'm not allowed to show you what evils are happening but I can show you the byproducts of mm-hmm. evil I love that that's super cool I hated that mini documentary yeah. but uh, I can yeah. appreciate its existence a little bit now you're not going to try horse meat? I never not try anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> I find his crossover from documentary to genre film to be really interesting. And I've always been interested in how genre film is stigmatized as lowbrow. That was something that featured very prominently in my thesis, in my research in sociology on horror. And I love how documentary is so respectable and it is telling the truth, even though it's telling a story about the truth. I find horror very true. And so to me, the crossover from respectable documentary to lowbrow genre film is a journey from literal truth to metaphorical truth. Mm -hmm. And I think his documentary chops are really seen here in how stark and in how direct the shooting is. And you had mentioned the actual face removal scene. Now, that scene was cut. In 1962, the English dubbed and retitled this film The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, or Faustus, uh, for release in America. And they cut that scene as well as scenes with tender moments between Dr. Genessier and the child from the clinic. 
That was the two things that they removed, and they put it in a double bill with a film called The Manster, which is every bit the exploitation horror title it sounds like that I sometimes use to attribute to men, to men who are professionally bullying me at the moment. There are monsters all around, and the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus did not belong in that double bill. And it soon became apparent when audiences were just kind of like, hey, psst, this movie is amazing, and I feel like it's not supposed to be. You know, people were confused. Even with those scenes removed, they could tell that this was something special. Well, and I always think, like, marketing, again, I work in marketing, so maybe I'm biased, but it's so important, and it pisses me off when I see it badly done, especially for horror. Uh-huh. Um, um, and, like, I love bad films. Mm-hmm. I love them so hard. I love to, like, get some friends together and make fun of them. It's just one of my pure joys in life. And if I, who love Eyes Without a Face, even if I saw a cut-up version of it, I'd mm-hmm. be like, I can't make fun of this. No. I can't be like, what a stupid, silly, scary movie I feel like is. shit right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're harsh in my buzz, man. Yeah, it's not so bad. It's good. It's good. It just is. It's good, good. Yeah. It's bon bon. It's good with those scenes removed, and uh, it was probably fine without them, but uh, I'm fine with those scenes. We will talk about The Doctor at great length momentarily, but I thought it was really interesting, the retitling of the horror mm-hmm. chamber of Dr. Faustus. Like, is this... Is this movie concerning a horror chamber, per se? There's a house with a lab in the basement of it. And Faustus, like, when you hear the term Faust, when you hear the term a Faustian contract, basically this is a character from a play who famously made a deal with the devil, who made a contract that he would have all the intelligence of the world in exchange for his soul. And he made this deal with Mephistopheles. And so, yeah, when I think of this film... And I think of the Faustian legend, I'm just kind of like, the traits that they share are hubris, and that's about it. So nice retitling, guys. Two claps. Yeah, it did kind of feel like a bit of a, you know, those magnetic poetry cases mm-hmm. on like a fridge where they're like, scary words put together. The horror graveyard of evil dick face. <laughs> Woodwatch. Oh, we should... This is why you're in marketing. I did want to ask you, actually, if you recognize the woman playing Louise, the assistant, (gasps) Alita Valley. Oh, no. I did not. But as soon as you say it, I'm going to be like, ha-ha, because maybe I did in my sub-sub-subconscious. She, more than 10 years later, played Tanner in the original Suspiria. I never would have placed her. Oh, because when I first saw it, it drove me crazy. Yeah? And then I eventually placed it, and I just high-fived myself. Okay. But yeah, um, so obviously she's about 17 years younger in this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, quite striking and beautiful, but she's still got those same strong features. So I just like that uh, she's obviously an Italian actress. and uh, Yeah, that's cool to watch. It's cool to hear an Italian accent in French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to know French and Italian well enough to be like, eh, that's it, smashing those two together. So... I am a relative newcomer to this film. How long ago did you see it? I probably saw it in my mid-20s. Okay. Yeah. And I'm, for context, turning 34 this year. So, like, 10-ish years ago. And did you see it because it was prescribed for a film something, or...? No. Um, I think I came across it or maybe read something about it. Uh, also, I was vaguely aware of that. I think it's terrible. I know people like it, but that Billy Idol song, Eyes Without a Face. You don't like it? I don't like it. Oh. I just, ugh. I like it. No, you know. 
And uh, yeah, so I, I think I randomly picked it up, but it wasn't like readily available. So I think I might have no. found it in um, uh, the university I went to archives or maybe. Sh- yeah. OK. Yeah. I saw this for the first time. I was on a flight from L.A. and I'm get one- it, Andrea. Yeah. You go on flights to L.A. <laughs> one time in my life. Anyway, I really loved it, and I had a very clear sense of what it was about. And so when I sat down to do research for this episode, I started to feel like I was alone in what I had a sense of what this film is about. And I always find that so interesting. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole lot out there on this film, like you said. There isn't a whole lot in the in, in the high-minded sense, but everything that I found about this film was so sympathetic to Genesier. Mm, Everything was so sympathetic. The brilliant but grief-stricken widow who's so full of guilt and so full of shame. Like, I read an article that said that insofar as Genesier was the prime mover of the story, whose choices and actions drive the film, his crimes are caused by Christiane. I hit the fucking roof, and I was just kind of like, okay, I get it. This is a weird little 1960 film that people aren't talky-talking about, but why aren't people talky-talking about how this is a film about a woman abused by a fucking psychopath, by an evil, evil, evil man? Well, that's the interesting thing, and I totally agree with your assessment that it is, in some ways, a mad doctor film, Mm -hmm. uh, or an evil doctor film. But the thing is, I, I think he is a mad doctor, to use that trope. But he does not portray himself as mad. Mm. It's that kind of veneer that he has of that coolly detached ness. And I think that kind of speaks to privilege. I think oh. that speaks to status. And Me I too. find that fucking fascinating. Especially the medical profession. Yes. Like when we're talking about slaughterhouses and when we're talking about medical experimentation, mm-hmm. I mean, of course I'm against animal testing, but at some point this was a necessary evil. Before things are the way they are now, it was a necessary evil. And doctors had to have a very clinical detachment from their subjects. They had to be like, I'm operating on you. I'm doing my job. I cannot be emotionally invested. So I, I do think that this film really accurately speaks to the fact that Genesier is approaching all this from a very detached scientific point of view and problematizes that. And I think that's part of what's interesting. But uh, using that to ascribe sympathy to what this man does. Well, and I think to kind of talk a little bit about how World War II influences this film, Mm -hmm. there is a kind of parallel, and some critics have made this parallel, of Genesier to uh, Joseph Mengele, who did horrifying, horrifying experimentation on innocent people. And that, I think, is what this film is kind of dealing with. Absolutely. That inhumanity Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. murdering these girls, Mm -hmm. disfiguring someone else's daughter, Mm -hmm. some other human being for the sake of his daughter. That's right. From an accident that he caused. Yeah. He says it's only mentioned really once, I think, in the film that he was like, I, I know I caused that accident, but uh, je suis désolé. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to put a new face on you. Exactly. And then everything will be fine, just like it was with Louise. I don't know if you mentioned it in your synopsis, but mm-hmm. it's revealed at some point in the film that Louise was a former patient of Genesier who had a similar procedure done, and all she's got to show for it is a scar around her neck covered by pearls, which is her undoing, which is awesome. 
And I, I think when we talk about aesthetics in this film, uh, the pearls are a huge visual metaphor yep. within this film, as well as the mask. Yes. Um, so we have to talk about this mask, and it is beautiful. It is eerie. It is unsettling. Yeah. It is. I th- I think I don't know if you agree. Maybe supremely uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It, uh, it actually kind of made me think a little bit about it. I mentioned on the show before that I really enjoy uh, all of the Real Housewives franchises. Mm-hmm. And now they've all had so much Botox and fillers <laughs> and plastic surgery that they can't, when they have emotional scenes and they cry and they freak out, yeah. they can't really move their face. Yeah. So you actually can't read what is really happening It's like to they're them. wearing a skin mask. Yeah, yeah. but it, it makes you remember how much we rely on human interaction and communication through our faces. Yes. Um, and how women's faces are this kind of be-all and end-all of a personality. Yes. Okay. They well. aren't. They aren't at all. I'm not saying that. But in a society, well, it, we, to be. we really can't deny the importance of the face. We really can't downplay that. We can resent it. Mm-hmm. We can criticize it until we're blue in the face. <laughs> God. But to me, I mean, the title of this film really says it all. Eyes are for seeing, but the face is for being seen, is for Mm -hmm. being perceived and for being understood. So eyes without a face is necessarily outward looking, hidden away, seeing without being seen. And so to me, this title is like, this film is about Christiane. Mm-hmm. Don't talk 100%. to me about Genessier and his Dr. poor, poor... Faustus and his fucking horror chamber. Yeah, that's that. about Genessier. <laughs> that's right. And this is a different film that we are going to talk about. Eyes without a face. I find it really interesting how in French, like, visage... Uh, we... Refers to... It refers to more than the literal face. It has to do with, like, personality. And that's character. true in Italian, too. Is it? And that's true in some other cultures. And yet in English, I don't think there is... I can't think of a no, term... Like face. Yeah. Your face is your literal fucking face. Everything else is your everything else. We have a word for that. But like in Italian, to make the bella figura is just, again, like to have the nice figure, I guess, is the literal translation. But it means to present well Mm. and to present well in all aspects of what is expected of a woman to present, you know, with strength and independence and intellect and beauty and poise and wit. Like the whole package is, is everything you want to present would be to present the bella figura. And I believe that's the same for the visage. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. And, and I, I think, you know, the ties to Christiane's physical beauty is, this film just problematizes it mm-hmm. so beautifully without ever saying, that guy's a fucking crazy person, mm-hmm. or that guy's a fucking asshole, because he's doing all this for his daughter's face. Meanwhile, she's totally mentally there, but being suppressed oh, by God. this household. And um, we will get to that. And being held down by her father and his assistant. Uh-huh. And, you know, who knows what her fiancé would have done. Oh, my God. Maybe he'd be totes cool with it. I'm sure at the very least he would have comforted her through this very lonely yeah. and miserable time. But, but again, back to masks. I have yet to pick up Doug Bradley's book. Mm. I wish I did just for the sake of this episode. But he basically wrote a book about how special effects makeup are, is not that dissimilar from a mask. And if you play an iconic horror film character, something that he knows a thing or two about, 
He was fucking pinhead. So these people who spend hours and hours and hours in the makeups chair to be transformed into someone else, it, it's it's a different form of a mask. And the mask has its significance in theater and in film and indeed in horror. Mm-hmm. A lot of our serial killers, our favorite slashers have these masks that render them expressionless. We can't get any humanity from them at all. Often the eyes are even blacked out. But when it comes to Christiane, her mask reminds me a lot more of the Phantom of the Opera. Another great French tradition. Where it is hiding a deformity with blankness, as if just to wipe the slate clean. Because I feel like in there, there's a tacit acceptance to the fact that everybody is unique and everybody has their own. There's no mask that's going to portray you as accurately as your own face. Well, and God, isn't that, you know, kind of the perfect metaphor for what I was talking about with World War II? The French didn't want to fucking remember what it done to its land and its people and everyone else. Neither did the Germans. So, like, look, everything's pretty. Everything's fine now. Not really. Don't look too closely at it. Slap a mask on it. And this actress, Edith Scobe, her heavy lifting that she has to do wearing this mask. Like you can see it. If you're paying attention, you can see the way she throws her head, the way she throws her hands, mm. the way her eyes like just bulge when they need to. She really had to pull double duty. You know, she's miming. Another yeah. great French tradition, <laughs> isn't it? The element of one's relationship to their face is especially interesting to me, not only because I suspect that men and women have very different relationships to their faces Mm. and very different relationships to their bodies. And I hate to generalize, and I hate to generalize, especially when it comes to this show, because I know we have a lot of feminist male listeners who are just kind of like, wop, 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 wop. Men have eating disorders. Men have complex relationships. Men have abuse. Men have trauma. Men have this and this and that. And okay. But, I mean, I I can just remember too, too many summers where – construction workers were across the street and I would leave my house in a sweater in the middle of summer to avoid harassment and just everything I put on my body growing up was considered under a male gaze of an observer on the street Mm. who at the very least will stare and at worst assault me possibly. I lived in fear of that and I dressed accordingly and that's something that I am still unraveling and untangling well into my 30s today. However, I also have a strong interest in body modification, mm. and I don't think that those two things are are independent. So if you'll permit me a little bit of a personal anecdote here. I mean, I like tattoos. I always have. I was always drawn to them even as a kid, and it's one of those things where you get one, and it feels really good, and you get more and more until you're just an endless, unfinished painting, and you're poor. But for myself, I felt like the more tattoos I got, the more I felt like myself. And I know that that is kind of abstract and it's kind of hard to understand when we're talking about applying designs to a blank canvas. I mean, obviously, I didn't have an ideation of myself with all these tattoos and like, yeah, I'm going to do that and that and that. But in marking myself, it's been a very empowering journey for me. And I've never had any plastic surgery done, but I have done research on it. And I've got a great book I can recommend that we'll put in the show notes. It's called Flesh Wounds, The Culture of Cosmetic Surgery by Virginia L. Blum. And one of the most interesting things I took away from that book is that attractiveness does not correlate to happiness. I feel like that's something that the book really drums into you because when we talk about people who become addicted to cosmetic surgery, people who are attracted to cosmetic surgery in the first place, there's always this 
tacit assumption that they want to be more attractive and that that will make them happier. And, and certainly attractiveness does correlate to many perks and advantages in life. There's been research on this. Dating, the workplace, overall likability, etc. These things are generally easier on objectively more attractive people. But what the book says is that people who are more objectively attractive aren't necessarily happier. People who perceive themselves as more attractive are happier. So it has less to do with how actually hot you are than how hot you think you are. And I know that sounds like it, it sounds like a motivational quote <laughs> that you might see on Facebook or something, but it, it's more about how you feel about your looks than how your looks actually are. So I think when we look at cosmetic surgery through that lens, it's people trying to make their bodies fit what they think they are, like to correspond how they feel themselves inside. And it's the furthest thing from superficial. Mm. I know it sounds really contradictory. Like they think that they should have had this nose or they should have had these boobs or whatever, and they feel it more like themselves following the procedure. And I think that's really illuminating and challenging for me because I feel like it's easy to judge these women for giving in to normative beauty standards and giving into them to the point where, indeed, you're putting your life at risk anytime you go under general anesthesia. It can be really difficult for a feminist to accept when we're trying so hard to reject these pressures. Well, I always feel like if it takes, you know, a stigma or stigma you've internalized away, then why not? I mean, unless you're getting really dangerous, I, I will say um, my parents had a business colleague uh, who was by all accounts a very evil person. Oh. And she was quite vain. And while undergoing a massive lawsuit, decided to have nine plastic surgery procedures. Oh, okay. So she was under anesthesia for over 12 hours and uh, died. She died? She died. It's actually a very famous Canadian film case. So um, if anyone puts it together from those clues, yeah, you win a faculty of horror button. It's sad. And there's a very dark side to this subject. But I guess what I'm trying to put out there is that, you know, I didn't choose brown eyes and big hair, but I chose all my ink. And there's agency in that. And agency is a really mm -hmm. big deal for people who have to fight for it every inch, all the fucking time. And that's been my experience as a woman. And so when we're talking about this film and we're talking about agency, I mean, did Christiane sign up for this at all? When I see this film, I see a woman who is struggling to accept herself. She's struggling to accept the accident. Mm -hmm. We don't have a very strong sense of who she was before the accident. No. They're not too heavy-handed with this. It's not like she was a fashion model. Yeah. Like I feel like if this movie hadn't been made in the U.S., it would have been, she was a child star and this all got taken away from her. She's struggling to accept herself and the people around her just won't let her. And I feel like it's really her father and also Louise yeah. who just can't bear to look at her. And so they make her wear this mask. Yeah. They take away all her mirrors lest she normalize what yeah. she looks like now. And that to me is so abusive and dark and terrifying. Because yeah, it's enforcing her to internalize that the way she looks now is wrong. As it's wrong. Bad. It yeah. has to be covered up. Not even, even when happening. She, when they find the mask somewhere else, they tell her to put it on. It's I, easier. Why? For who? For what? The idea of wearing a mask endlessly is horrible to me. And and sure enough, as the movie starts, she receives her death notice. Mm -hmm. That's kind of upsetting. 
It's bad enough I have no face, now I have no identity. So yeah, Genesier, the father, he goes and identifies uh, the body of another girl who he's killed, yeah. presumably to put uh, try and put another face on uh, Christian. And uh, they call him first mm-hmm. because they know he's been waiting a bit longer to hear about his daughter. He's very affluent. We should help him we out. Should, yeah, should let, him, let him in first oh, yeah. before the other sobbing mm-hmm, father. Mm-hmm. And he just very coldly identifies this body. Yes, this is Christian. And I can walk away, and this is fine now. I can walk away into the parking lot and treat this grieving man like complete fucking shit. I saw this movie the first time, and I was just kind of like, oh, what an interesting mystery is unraveling. I was <laughs> raging the second time around for this episode. Yeah. Fuck you, Dr. G. So hard. Like, we don't ever see Christiane beg her daddy for a new face because no. I want to be pretty again. She just wants to live her life, whatever that might look like. And it's her determination and her agency in calling her fiancé to yes. reach out, to hear his voice, to to make some kind of connection, even though she doesn't say anything until the last phone call, which really tips him off. That's right. It's that brief moment of agency that may have started to turn things around. But again, in her agency at the end, Christian just kind of subverts all the police activity that could have happened, even though they're kind of bumbling idiots. Yeah. And just was like, fuck, I'll just burn this to the ground. Yeah. Bye. Peace out. That's right. And I readily admit that I would have had a problem with this film had she been like, hey, Jacques, I'm locked up here like a damsel in distress. Come rescue me. If the film had have ended like that, I would have been pissed. And she was talked a lot about in this uh, interview in 1980 that, again, we'll link in the show notes. He talks about, and the interviewer brings it up, his love of melodrama. But he says very specifically in this interview, you cannot have melodrama without some sense of humor or irony. Uh. And melodrama for him, for Franjou, enters into a narrative when there is love and romance. Right. That's when it kind of all starts turning, and he's not scared of it. He doesn't reject it, but he wants to temper it. Yeah. And I think make it more realistic, mm-hmm. because I think even when each and every one of us has fallen in love, yes, it's a very consuming feeling, but there's other shit going on in our lives oh, yeah. that informs it, that makes it silly, that makes it big, that makes it small, that does all of these things. And I, I think Christiane, what, what I find fascinating about her is that due to this mask, we can't read her face, as we've mentioned, so we actually don't know where she's going mm. the whole film. Mm-hmm. We we don't really know what she's going to do in the next step. Like, yes, she shows up to watch these girls and to look at them, but is she going to free them or is she going to do something else? Mm-hmm. Is she going to go pet these dogs or you know torture them like her father? Mm-hmm. Is she going to do all these things? And in some ways, she's quite withdrawn from this film, but we see these inklings of her creating humanity and and making an allegiance with the dogs who her father keeps in the basement next to his surgery room. The horror chamber. The horror chamber, right? Yep. Excuse me. And she's kind and pets them and loves them because Mm -hmm. they're big, silly dogs. Mm -hmm. I also, when I was rewatching this, just had an image of like the camera kind of panning along all the big dogs and then it just like panning down and there's like a little Dante. Little Dante. Experiment on me, Papa. <laughs> Papa, no. But it, it's uh, she's making connections with people outside of humanity, and for me, this is really interesting because again, I'm just going to bring it back to World War Two. Again, we had so many horrors in World War Two, and the whole world at that time was coming off of 
the horrors of World War One that were not even really a generation removed at that point. Mm. And um, the the book I was mentioning in our January episode, Wasteland by W. Scott Poole, really goes into how World War One was one of the last wars to really be fought with like humans on the ground mm. battling each other mm-hmm. before it got to like nuclear bombs yeah. and all of these things. Yeah. We'll take out this continent. How about that? Exactly. And so the notion of a fractured and disfigured face yeah. was a marker and a reminder of the horrors of World War One and maybe even World War Two to a certain extent. So no wonder you would want to cover it up. And I think the ending of this film is incredibly important. One, because I think it's one of the most beautiful images in cinema. Yeah. It's stunning. Those last few moments when she's got the do- like the pigeon doves around her. I hadn't planned to bring John Woo's face-off into this, which obviously shares a lot of its narrative DNA. It's all very 90s. It's all very action movie. It's all very Nicolas Cage, which has become an adjective now that you guys all know what I'm talking about. But that film also utilizes a lot of doves flying free while somewhere over the rainbow plays. And it's got this weird schmaltzy saccharine slow-mo bullshit, whereas this film employs it with a lot more dignity and artistry, I'd say. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as we've talked about the notion of the mad doctor or um, Dr. Genesee in particular and his privilege and how he's able to kind of navigate through this world, um, you know, I think it's important to talk about the way that humans have impacted this world. And not to get all mother again, but I think a lot of this film is very concerned with the history of man and the history of humankind where um, scientific advancements have come for service and have done some good, Mm -hmm. but have also come at a really high cost. Mm -hmm. And it seems like for all the damage that we do with our science and our experimentation and our wars and our way to make wars quicker, faster, better, stronger, we are constantly trying to cover it up. Mm. We are constantly trying to, shall we say, mask it. We are trying to put the veneer over it to make it more understandable, to bring it back to a kind of former natural beauty. Right. But that beauty, in my opinion, will always be slightly synthetic. Mm -hmm. You're kind of one removed away from the real. Mm -hmm. You're no longer real. It's kind of an implication of the real. Mm -hmm. What speaks to me so strongly in this film is the notion of Christian just going back into the world. Just having murdered a couple people, mm-hmm. letting one go, and just kind of trying to restore natural order, and that it is her kind of re-embracing the natural world order mm-hmm. rather than trying to subvert it. That's right. Well, there's no way there's no way she can re-enter civilization without airing all that dirty laundry. And by now, Dr. G is under investigation. I mean, they had this whole plant, right? They mm-hmm. had this whole bait and switch thing going on to entrap the murderer. Uh, she's got some explaining to do. And I would hope that if this was a true story and if that were a sequel or something, that she would, you know, that her dad would go down in history as a very shameful figure and she would get her life back. But... Eyes without a face, two. Two eyes, two face. (laughs) I feel the World War II, especially when we're looking at how the animals are test subjects. The animals are the slaughterhouse that we saw in Franju's short. These women are fodder 
to Dr. G. I love that the film takes pains to show him and Louise disposing of their bodies. Uh no, it's just Louise. It's just Louise the first time. Then the, the second one, Edna, they actually put her in the family mausoleum. Yeah, but that's it. I, this is the thing is I feel that uh, Genesier is very hands-off. I agree with you that Louise yeah. does a lot of the dirty work, and she does it really well. She's not just running up to people and chloroforming them. She is seducing them. Mm-hmm. She is preying on the fact that these young women are new to Paris and trying to make a name for themselves. The fact that Edna was desperately trying to find an apartment was very Toronto to me, and yeah. that kind of struck a fucking nerve. But she took them to a show. She gained their trust. Mm-hmm. She enchanted them. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a very salient point. But I think that... With regard to World War II, which was a very racist rhetoric, right? World War I was this is the enemy and this is the enemy because I say so and go fight the fucking enemy. The rhetoric was different. And so insofar as Dr. Mangel, who you had mentioned before, he felt like he was experimenting on animals Mm -hmm. because he was experimenting on a lesser race. These women were just like Christiane. They could have been Christiane. But to Dr. Genessier, they were just a vehicle to absolving his own guilt. Yeah. And so less than human. And I think that's, you know, something the film does really well is, you know, the victims, um, particularly the two main ones. We've got Edna, who the face transplant actually almost is successful with, and then the kind of plant one. And, and the film takes pains to show them and a bit of their personality yeah. and that they are people. They are people and their parents are worried about them or concerned or they are missing them. We, we have a sense of who... These victims are. And Edna's even trying to be safe. You know, she's employed the tactics that today, in 2019, I still employ. I'm going here. I expect to be back at this time. If you don't hear from me, it was the woman in the pearl collar. Yeah. Ooh, pearl collar, like a dog collar. Totally. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the writing of one of my favorite film critics and writers, a guy by the name of Robin Wood, and he uh, is super prevalent in horror uh, scholarship. And he actually wrote a paper that, again, we'll link in the show notes about Georges Franju, and it's called Terrible Buildings, the World of Georges Franju. And he really situates a lot of Franju cinema in the notion of buildings. And in buildings, we have to think about institutionalization and the institutions which we as a society and a civilization rely on. So for Wood, in this case, a terrible building is a neutral or anonymous looking building, which is rendered terrifying by our knowledge of its workings. And while we don't want to enter it, we must. In order for the story to proceed or for anything else to kind of happen narratively, we have to go through those doors, even though we know something bad is about to happen. And Franju kind of complicates this, you know, the terrible place or the terrible building that is not uncommon in horror cinema. What Franju makes special about it is what Wood calls his neutral camera. And this is something kind of going back to what we were talking about with his uh, documentary roots, Mm -hmm. that it's not, you know, these kind of hard angles and decanted camera angles that are really augmenting our experience of this building. It is simply like, we know narratively something bad is happening there, but we have to proceed with what is about to happen in this story in order to keep going. So Wood talks a lot about 
Freud and against society and how buildings are really central to civilization. So using the examples we've talked about in this episode, we're talking about a slaughterhouse, which feeds a, a large portion uh, certainly back then, at least, of the population through meat and protein and all kinds of things. And in Eyes Without a Face, while it's maybe not as obvious, I think we're very much dealing with a family home. Mm. And again, what happens behind the closed doors of a family home? What do we know and what don't we know? And what this kind of terrible building and situating it within a family home does is it makes the familiar and the familial strange and terrifying. And it makes us overall re-examine how we operate in society. Mm. That if uh, if blood of the beast really upsets you, then, well, what are you upset about in society? Yeah, yeah. It's complicating our notion of the things we maybe take for granted or the things we don't think about. And Wood kind of talks about Freud quite a bit because he was really into psychoanalysis. And so Freud is obviously very big into that. And for Freud, the building is a common image or metaphor for a personality. And I think in Eyes Without a Face, what Franju is doing is making the individual compromised. Mm. So again, to kind of cast our eyes back to World War II and the kind of French identity within it, it's, you know, kind of saying that, you know, yeah, we as a society have a problem, but we as individuals also have a problem. It is the individual home life which kind of factors into the issues and the anxiety around what we are dealing with. And I think that's, you know, really absolutely fascinating because I think so much of what horror does, especially kind of contemporary horror, when you look at like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween, et cetera, et cetera, what it's doing is it's bringing horror home. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but it all starts with family. Mm-hmm. And this is where the seedlings start. And yes, we have these huge societal issues which contribute to them, but we as individuals also contribute to the societal problems. Mm-hmm. So it's figuring out how we can alter them, break them, change them. And I, I think in the ending of this film, as we've talked about, it's Christiana's rejection of all of the societal norms, of everything she's been told, of the good, hardworking uh, doctor who is so beloved and revered within his culture. And I actually think the script of this film is quite brilliant. And there's one thing uh, Genesier says right off the top of the film when he's kind of leaving his lecture early on that really struck me and I'm still kind of reeling it over in my head and he says to uh, these women who are kind of fawning over him uh, about like oh you're the future you're this you're that you're gonna you're gonna change everything Mm -hmm. and he says the future is something we should have started a long time ago Mm -hmm. and this notion of just being stuck and mired in this way that we are unable to change and while you know, I think through all of his problematic and despicable elements, he is trying to fix something. He's not fixing it correctly. He's super evil and he's doing all the wrong things, but he's trying to fix something that happened in the past rather than looking towards the future. And Mm -hmm. I think the end is Christiane going towards the future. And I think it's actually very important in the film. Not only is it visually beautiful, but because uh, so much of the film when Christina is on screen is focused on her mask and her face. And it's where the kind of camera centers. And then at the end of the film, it's her walking away from the camera. So you just see her back. 
Mm-hmm. You don't see her face. Obviously, she still has the mask on when she leaves the home, but that's when we begin to lose sight of her. Mm-hmm. And for me, certainly, I'm excited and scared for her about what she's about to encounter, but mm-hmm. it's better than what existed. She's free. Exactly. And freedom, with whatever turnout, is better than captivity and lack of agency is what she was up against. And I don't know about you, but in his initial lecture, this is something I only picked up on on the second watch, I got the sense from that lecture that these rich old biddies were sitting in there and they were just like, oh, I can be young forever. Mm -hmm. This is breakthroughs in science that will benefit me and my superficial ideals. And the fact that that thought struck me and I had to deconstruct that and and, and deal with it. <laughs> and that's maybe something on my own journey. But I do think it's interesting that he presents his research in such an altruistic way, but he practices it in a very, very selfish and hubristic way mm-hmm. in the home. Institutions are weird. And I'm saying that as, you know, as the face, the visage of Rumorg magazine. And I remember when I first came into here, it was it, it felt like such an institution. It felt like a place where things were immobile. You know, it had figures who were locked in place and it had a history and it had a format and everything to follow. And then I kind of came in this position where that was that was mine to change. And institutions can be changed. And institutions are also like they're so abstract, but they do become intrinsically linked with a building or a place, just like you were talking about. And I think it's great that this French film tackles institutions in such an abstract way because a lot of the great sociologists who attacked institutions and institutionalization in an abstract way are also the great French sociologists. Mm-hmm. God bless the French. <laughs> Now, one more place that I was hoping to take this discussion was we talk a lot about patriarchy on this podcast, and I think I've even used the term big P patriarchy to refer to the great big institutions that present the notion of men as in a position of domination over women and all the cultural fallout that reifies that notion. And I feel like that fallout is something that's largely contested today. You'll see social media get all in a tizzy about a particular news story or a particular ad. And these are kind of microcosms of the bigger problem of the bigger P of patriarchy. But in the smaller P of patriarchy, one of the ways that power is institutionalized is legally. And one of the ways that men have monopolized power over women legally was with regard to fatherhood and marriage. Historically, marriage entailed the full identity death of women. Women would relinquish everything to their husband who then controls things until that task is passed on to a son if they have one, or heaven forbid, they have a daughter, which they then have to marry off to the best dowry that they can. But my point is that it was tradition for women to take their husband's surname, why children often take the dad's surname, why men still ask women's fathers for their hand in marriage, why dads walk their daughters down the aisle. There's a lot of tradition and institutions that reify the idea that daughters belong to their fathers until they belong to their husband. And historically, women couldn't own 
property. They couldn't own assets. They couldn't vote for a while there. And like we're working on equality in the workplace. We're working on the wage gap, reproductive rights and stuff like that. But there are still a lot of legal battles when it comes to divorce right now. Like divorce used to leave women destitute because they couldn't own property. And yet they had all this responsibility. And now there are all these like father's rights movements because dads are feeling disenfranchised by divorce. And it's understandable when you consider that one point in the not too distant past, fathers had complete legal control over their entire family. So there's still a lot to unpack with regard to this subject. But when it comes to this film, I think Dr. Genessier's control over his daughter, it's intimately tied toward his guilt. But it's just the fact that he feels guilt that deeply over maiming his daughter's face. Mm -hmm. I like how it takes the idea of a woman's relationship to her face and a man's relationship to his daughter and presents that intimacy but also kind of problematizes it. Mm -hmm. It complicates it at the very least such that we can talk about it some more. Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, it does so in a way that – well. Uh, to kind of bring it back to animals to a certain degree mm-hmm. with Blood of the Beast, it's, you know, you've got your prized animal. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing I'm going to go to market and I'm going to sell and it's going to take care of me and it's going to take care of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's an incredibly complicated, reductive element to being a woman. Mm-hmm. Not only the parental fears that you receive about your eligibility, but your own place in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's that she's never seen as being able to not only survive, but thrive on her own. Mm-hmm. She's so dependent on looks and what those looks are capable of creating monetarily, mm-hmm. potentially. That's right. And I love the idea of, you know, your children are your future. I hate to use these really. My cats are my future. (laughs) Dr. Genessier, he has one daughter and he's a widow and it's Christiane. And if you subscribe to the idea that she is only worth as much as she is beautiful, then that's a really dark spot for Dr. Bean because he is only worth how beautiful she is. And I think there is a kind of dialogue that's happening subconsciously within the film because he's a plastic surgeon. His daughter is disfigured. Why can't he fix her? That's right. And I like fix in air quotes. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that's kind of, I think, this underlying rumble within the film Mm -hmm. that that exists. And, you know, he has so much, uh, so much going for him within this world that to not be able to fix what is nearest and dearest to him mm-hmm. is incredibly detrimental to his entire career and his kind of being and his persona. And that is maybe what little sympathy I will afford Dr. G in this film is that he is a victim of this patriarchy almost as much as she is, even though he is an instrument of it and she mm-hmm. will dismantle that machine, that institution. Yeah. With doggies. And doves. That's the bulk of what I have to say about Eyes Without a Face. I think fundamentally it is a film that forces people to question how they're living their lives, how they are presenting the way they're living their lives, and how they reconcile their lifestyle within those lives. And I think these are really big, grand themes that, you know, we've covered so many movies on the Faculty of Horror podcast. I can't think of a single film that is so deeply complex and layered and nuanced, and yet I haven't seen talked about in these circles to this extent. So I've been really pleased about having the opportunity to talk about it. 
And I guess if I could give a parting note with regard to these themes that we've talked about, it's, uh, man, you do you. Like, this is a feminist podcast, and we we talk about all the different ways that films can empower us and understandings of films and interpretations of films can empower us. But fundamentally, whatever gets you through this horrible, horrible world, we have to do a lot of shitty shit to get by. We have to look the other way on a lot of shitty shit to get by. And, you know, if it uh, if a nice outfit makes you feel better, if a nose job gets you through your day, I want you to do that. And I want you to um, reap the benefits to their fullest. If murdering your father with a bunch of his dogs... Call me. I'll help. Yeah. So that's it for another Faculty of Horror episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We love you guys. And we have a couple announcements. So one of the first ones is... Hopefully you're all following us on social media, so this won't be a huge shock, but... OMG, we're going back to Salem Horror Fest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are super excited um, to be uh, partnering with them again and working with them. And it's an amazing festival. And uh, yeah, we are going to be back in Salem October 5th. Woo. And we are going to be talking about in our live show, Under the Skin. Yep. I'm excited. Almost wanted to talk about it in this episode. But we can't. Nope. And we're not going to be treading on the same territory because what a different film. Oh, boy. Some of the same themes, but I'm desperate to talk about that film. Yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah, there will probably be at least 20 minutes during the live show where my brain kind of falls in upon itself and I just lie in the middle of the stage. <laughs> so you're going to have to carry 20 minutes, no Andrea. No problem. Um, so yeah, tickets are on sale for that. If we can give you any hot tips, it's that if you're coming... Book those tickets soon. Book your accommodation soon if you are yeah. staying in Salem because October is fill hot up. ticket time in mm-hmm. Salem. So uh, get on that. And uh, we hope we see you guys there. I'd love to meet you. Like, we hang out. And this year we are. I'm also going to be doing a lecture on social media in horror the same day. And we are going to be hanging out. And we're going to figure out, like, a kind of official, like, hangout time mm-hmm. um so we can all like get together at uh maybe a restaurant or something and like have a coffee or a beer and like hang out and chat uh because we've been able to do it at salem horror before and we just want to make it like a little bit more official so we all get a bit of a chance to hang out yeah so we're working on that so definitely give us a follow on social media to be kept appraised but mark your calendars for coming out and meeting us we would love that and on the heels of that not entirely unrelated but you know what helps us do things like field trips to Salem? What, Andrea? Buying our merch. We have our class of 2019 t-shirt design out now. Surprise. And it's not only a t-shirt design, but a motherfucking tote bag. A tote bag, guys. I'm so excited about this fucking tote bag. Me too. I have a couple of those and I use them so much. Mm-hmm. We have amazing artwork by a great British artist by the name of Tom Humberstone, who's super lovely and has done incredible work and, uh, we are so thrilled to have partnered with him for this. And yeah, these again, these are limited editions. They're going to be on sale for a few months via Twisted Tees. And links to buy our merch will be in the show notes, as will links to Salem Horror. So thanks in advance for so much support on that front. We are really happy to bring you these episodes for free. Um, the Faculty of Horror being free to access has always been incredibly important to Alex and I, and I cannot believe that we are into our... I think this is episode 70. Last episode was episode 70. Oh. Was it? 
I don't. I anyway, we've been doing this for a while. We've been doing this for a while. We're not going to stop. We have no plans of stopping. But buying our merch definitely helps us out. As does rating us on iTunes, subscribing, all those numbers that we can brag about to our cats and our dog. Tweet about us. Instagram us. Facebook us. TikTok us. <laughs> We super appreciate it. And, God, is it time to announce the next episode? I don't know, Andrea. I'm getting kind of sleepy. I'm kind of sleepy, too. Maybe we should should sleep perchance to dream, perchance to nightmare (gasps) on Elm Street. What? 70 episodes and counting, (laughs) and we have not talked about Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, I'd say it's motherfucking time. And I'd say it's been a few years since we did a two-parter episode. Uh So we're going to talk about the franchise. Not the whole franchise, but we're going to do two episodes on Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So certainly for the first episode, next month, we are going to do Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Revenge. Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. That's a good start. This franchise swells and meanders, and we're going to see a little later on how we're going to attack the latter portion of the films, but there's a lot of meat on these here bones. Freddy's bones. Freddy's bones. Freddy's pedophilia. The dog pisses on? (laughs) I think I might have just converged Hellraiser and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Anyway... I'm excited and slightly intimidated. Yes. But I think this will be really fun and uh, a little different. And fuck, guys. Get some good night's sleep. You're going to need it. You got a lot of homework. We have a lot of homework. So until next time. Office hours are closed. Hey!